Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. A Christian scholar named Larry Taunton launched a nationwide campaign to interview college students who are members of secular student alliances, which are basically the atheist equivalents to Christian campus groups. Taunton and his organization contacted the leaders of these groups and asked them to share their journey to unbelief. Dr. Taunton said, we just wanted to listen to what they had to say. After receiving a flood of inquiries from students across the country, what they had to say startled Dr. Taunton and, or Taunton and his team. Taunton said, with few exceptions, students would begin by telling us that they had become atheists for exclusively rational reasons. But as we listened, it became clear that for most, this was a deeply emotional transition as well. This phenomenon, he writes, was most powerfully exhibited in Meredith. She explained in detail how her study of anthropology had led her to atheism. When the conversation turned to her family, however, she spoke of an emotionally abusive father. It was when he died, she said, that I became an atheist. Dr. Taunton said, I could see no obvious connection between her father's death and her unbelief. Was it because she loved her abusive father? Abused children often do love their parents, and she was angry with God for his death? No, Meredith explained. I was terrified by the thought that he could still be alive somewhere. Rebecca, then a Clark University student in Boston, bore similar childhood scars. When the state intervened and removed her from her home after her mother had attempted suicide, Rebecca prayed that God would let her return to her family. He didn't answer, she said, so I figured he must not be real. After a moment's reflection, she appended her remarks by saying either that or maybe he is real, and he's just trying to teach me something. There are things that happen to us, and then there is how we explain to ourselves and to others what happened to us. Or we could say it like this. There is a trauma that we experience. And then there is an interpretation of the trauma that we express. Dr. Jamie Ayton is a cancer survivor and a Christian who researches how people respond to trauma. In a column originally published in the Washington Post, Ayton wrote, my colleagues and I have interviewed and surveyed disaster survivors about their views of God in the wake of catastrophe. We have found that you can have two people who go through almost identical losses with one believing God saved them while the other believes God is punishing 
them. There is a trauma that we experience, and then there is an interpretation of the trauma that we express. Today we're starting a new message series that I have been looking forward to for some time, titled, Turning Trauma into Triumph. It is based on the biblical story of the life of Joseph. If ever there was a person who turned horrific, heartbreaking experiences of trauma into holy, breathtaking expressions of triumph, it was Joseph. The story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, has an epic quality to it that is unrivaled in its capacity to probe the depths, the heights, the sorrows, and the joys that form the mysterious and often painful events in our lives. In broad strokes, this story, familiar to many Bible readers from our childhood, tracks the complex path of Joseph's extraordinary life from his early days in an extremely dysfunctional family. On the one hand, enjoying his father's open and obvious favoritism of him, as indicated by the famous coat of many colors. And on the other hand, as a consequence of that favoritism, enduring his brother's increasingly hurtful taunts and bullying. His strange dreams that cast him in the role of leader in his family incite his brother's hatred even more to the point that they determine to murder him when they see him coming to check on them as they tend their family's herds far from home. At the last moment, murder is narrowly avoided when one of the brothers suggests that Joseph be sold to a passing caravan of slave traffickers. Joseph is carted off to Egypt where he is sold as a domestic slave to an Egyptian government leader named Potiphar, a senior official in Pharaoh's administration. Joseph immediately proves himself to be an outstanding house manager and is soon entrusted with running Potiphar's entire domestic domain. However, Mrs. Potiphar had her own plans for the young, handsome, well-built Joseph. She repeatedly propositions him to have sex with her, and Joseph, to his credit, resolutely resists her attempts of seduction. When he rejects her most aggressive sexual advance, she falsely accuses him of attempted rape to her husband. Potiphar has no choice but to throw Joseph into prison. Yet even while unjustly incarcerated, Joseph's leadership skills are once more put to use, and it is not long before he becomes the trusted administrator of the prison he's confined in under its warden. And then one day, two state prisoners are put in his care, Pharaoh's chief wine taster and his chief baker. They have dreams that they share with Joseph who correctly interprets them 
as indicating that the former will be restored to his position while the latter will be executed. And Joseph takes the opportunity to explain his own false arrest and incarceration to the cupbearer and ask him upon his imminent release to please bring his case before Pharaoh. However, once he gets released, the cupbearer promptly forgets Joseph for the next two years, recalling him only when Pharaoh himself has disturbing dreams that none of his sorcerers and soothsayers can satisfactorily explain. Pharaoh summons Joseph, who interprets Pharaoh's dreams as a message from God that Egypt is about to enjoy seven years of unprecedented abundance, followed by seven years of unrelenting famine. In preparation of these events, Joseph advises Pharaoh that he should organize the food supplies of the nation. Pharaoh perceives the remarkable wisdom in Joseph's detailed economic advice and on the spot makes him Egypt's chief administrator, second only in national power to Pharaoh himself. And Joseph is remarkably catapulted from prison to high office of state, which is the reverse of what we're familiar with in American politics. <laughs> Joseph immediately sets about using his superior administrative skills and his new governmental powers to set up vast storehouses for the nation's grain. This system works so well that the Egyptian granary storehouses are full to overflowing by the end of the years of plenty. Then come the years of famine, as foreseen in Pharaoh's dreams. The shortage of food affects not only Egypt, but also the surrounding nations that are forced to come to Egypt for food aid. And lo and behold, among those who come for help are Joseph's brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery all those years ago when they arrive at a distribution center overseen by Joseph himself, they fail to recognize him, although he instantly recognizes them. And the stage is now set for a captivating and complex human drama in which Joseph, still unrecognized by his brothers, uses his power and influence behind the scenes to probe their backgrounds and ultimately awaken their consciences to face what they did to him. Finally, when he's convinced that they've genuinely repented, he reveals himself to them, publicly forgives and embraces them in one of the most moving scenes, not only in the Bible, but in all of world literature. Jacob, Joseph's father, that he hasn't seen in years, is then moved to Egypt along with the rest of the family to be near Joseph and to live under his lavish care until he dies, surrounded by his sons. What a story! John Lennox writes, the story of Joseph is a masterpiece of storytelling. Elegant use of simple flowing language carries us into a world that seems at first glance utterly removed from our world. And yet, as we think our way into the narrative, it rapidly becomes a penetrating searchlight into the complex psychodramas of our own lives. 
Friends, nearly every trauma we can experience today, family secrets, overt favoritism, sibling rivalry, passive fathering, sudden and untimely deaths, abusive behavior, brutal betrayal, undeserved oppression, unwanted sexual harassment, unjust imprisonment, unkept promises, sudden success, the use of newly bestowed power, an unexpected opportunity for revenge, a struggle to forgive, the necessity of coming clean, the power of reconciliation, the reunion with estranged family members, the death of a family patriarch, All this and so much more are found in this spellbinding scriptural story of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. And over the coming weeks, we're going to unpack some of the major sources of trauma in Joseph's story. And as we do, we will identify in our own lives three things. The human patterns of sin, the hidden purposes of God, and the humbling power of God. Grace, the human patterns of sin, the hidden purposes of God, and the humbling power of grace. Complex lives have complex backgrounds, and Joseph is no exception. So before we start to think about the specific details of the Joseph narrative, we need to step back and set it in the context of the rest of the book of Genesis in which the story is told. Since the story of Joseph comes at the end of Genesis, understanding the background that came before it is invaluable. After all, the author of Genesis anticipates you read all the book, not just the last part. As is the custom in that part of the world, Joseph would have grown up on a steady diet of stories of the great heroes of Israel's tribal history. He would have been steeped in the fascinating narratives of his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac, and his great-grandfather Abraham. But not only that, he would have been acquainted with their prehistory right back to the beginning. In other words, Joseph would have known a good deal of the plot line of the book of Genesis. So it is helpful for us to begin there so we can know some of what Joseph knew. Genesis is more than a narrative. It is a meta-narrative. What does that mean? It gives us a grand framework for our understanding of the universe and life. And Genesis can be organized into at least Two major sections. Most scholars say there's at least five or seven. I'm just going to give you two. First part of the book consists of the story of creation, the fall of human beings into sin, God's subsequent judgment on sin. There's a story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. But starting in Genesis 12, the writer of the book focuses in on the story of a single family, what many people have called the most important family in the history of the world. This section covers the lives of the Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are in that order, Joseph's great-grandfather, grandfather, and father. A best-selling book on the subject of trauma is titled, It Didn't Start With You. When we begin to understand the unconscious imprint and impact our families of origin 
have on our lives, we quickly realize how true that is. Joseph is faced with a lot of horrific problems in his life, and most of them did not start with him. One of the modern tools that counselors and therapists have developed to identify patterns of family trauma is called a genogram, and a genogram is simply a diagram illustrating a person's family members. A genogram allows a person to identify and better understand any hereditary patterns of behavior, medical, and psychological factors that run through families. Constructing a genogram helps us examine unhealthy patterns from the past that we often unconsciously bring into our present relationships. Melinda and I did a genogram several years ago, and it was very revealing for both of us and created greater understanding of each other, our parents, our grandparents, our siblings, and of how our relationships with each of them affected our relationship with each other. When we did our genogram, we were told to consider these elements. Number one, describe each family member with two or three adjectives. Describe your parents' marriage and your grandparents' marriage, if you know anything about it. How was conflict handled in your family? What are the generational themes in your family? Is there a lot of addictions? Are there affairs, a lot of divorce, out-of-wedlock births, abortions, mental illness? How well did your family talk about their feelings? How was sexuality talked about in your family, or was it not talked about at all? Were there any family secrets? What was considered success in your family? How did your family's ethnicity shape you? While a genogram may reveal some significant challenges from your upbringing, it is not about assigning blame or being a victim. A genogram is about understanding what you're holding and what's holding you. A genogram is about explaining what you're holding and what's holding you. Some of you may be thinking, this sounds more like an introductory psychology course than a Bible lesson. <laughs> is this a Bible thing, preacher? Let me respond to that a couple of ways. There are at least 25 different genealogical lists in the Bible. The book of Genesis alone devotes over one-fifth of its 50 chapters to recording various genealogical lists spanning periods of time from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, and from Abraham to Joseph. I think many of those genealogies are there for a twofold purpose. Number one, to document and reveal the depth of human depravity, and number two, to showcase the faithfulness and mercy of God. The first book in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew, begins with a genealogy of 
Jesus. And that genealogy not only makes the case that Jesus is from the right bloodline and has a legitimate claim to be Israel's Messiah, it is also a stunning display of God's grace being greater than human disgrace in almost every name listed. One of the most important names listed in Jesus' genealogy is Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. Someone has done a genogram of Abraham and the generations that directly succeeded him. Why don't you take a look at this? And we're going to go back and forth from this uh, genogram of Abraham for just a moment. So we have Abraham up here and Sarah, his wife. Later on, Hagar comes in, servant girl to Sarah. We'll explain that more in just a moment. Just take a look at this for just a moment. Abraham's family history is a powerful example of both generational blessings and sinful patterns being passed on. The blessing of Abraham and his family are so significant and so far-reaching that they touch us today to the point that Paul says, if we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham. That's, That's quite a blessing. However... Few readers note the sins and emotional immaturity that are also passed down from generation to generation. What am I talking about? There are at least three common patterns that become evident in Abraham's family all the way down here to Joseph. Number one, there's a pattern of lying that's evident in all generations, increasing in intensity with each generation. Fearful for his own life, Abraham lied about Sarah denying she was his wife, so he would be protected. Rebecca and Isaac's marriage is also marked by lies and deceit. Their son Jacob then increases his level of deception by lying consistently to almost everyone with whom he's in relationship, and by the fourth generation, the greatest lie of all in their family is concocted when 10 of Jacob's sons fake the death of their youngest brother, Joseph. Here's a second pattern. A second common pattern is the way at least one parent in each generation had a favorite child. Abraham favors Ishmael. But Sarah wants him removed, so her son Isaac has all of Abraham's attention. Isaac favors Esau, his oldest while his wife, Rebekah, favored Jacob, his youngest twin boys, by the way. Jacob favored Joseph and later Joseph's brother, Benjamin. A third pattern, sibling rivalry and relational cutoff between the brothers cause tensions that show up through three successive generations. The friction between Ishmael and Isaac eventually leads to them being cut off from one another. And we're still feeling the effects of that cutoff in the Middle Eastern tensions between Arabs and Jews. Esau and Jacob became open enemies after Jacob steals the family blessing from him. Finally, Joseph is cut off from his 10 older brothers for over two decades before they are reconciled. Understanding these family patterns is huge, is huge in understanding the story of Joseph. Here's what I want to say. Exposing 
hidden patterns of sin in the primary environments that formed us is vital to turning trauma into triumph. But when we look at Joseph's story in the light of his ancestor, not only do we see human patterns of sin, we see the human or we see the hidden purposes of God. Now, I want to tell you something. What I'm about to show you will mess with you. It messed with me. This has been one of those discoveries in scriptures that took my breath away when I understand what God promised to Abraham and then how he fulfilled it in Joseph. Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. Joseph never met him. Abraham lived at least 100 years before Joseph was ever born. The account of Abraham's life starts when God makes a promise to him that has huge implications for the subsequent history of the world, God said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The remainder of the book of Genesis, and really all the books preserved in the Bible, tell us how that promise was and is yet to be fulfilled. The promise of becoming a great nation naturally implied that Abraham and Sarah's wife would have children, yet it soon became clear that in their case, something had gone wrong with the physical reproductive processes of life. They, like many couples, struggled with infertility. It is this circumstance that forms the initial focus of one of the major themes of the life of Abraham, Faith in God. The Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision and spoke to him, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Abraham's response revealed his pain at being childless. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Abraham pointed out that because he had no natural heir, he would have no choice but to make his servant Eliezer his legal heir. But the Lord said, That's not how it's going to go down, Abram. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord then told Abram to count the stars in the Mediterranean sky. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's reaction was as brief as it was profound. He believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. With that statement, we have reached the central theme of Genesis and of every other biblical book, trusting God and his word. Think about it. The fatal wrong turn away from God recorded in Genesis 3 consisted in putting trust in a voice other than God's. And that's a constant danger for all of us in a world where we're bombarded with a multitude of voices, all clamoring for our undivided attention. The way back to God, therefore, must be learning to listen to his voice and to trust what he says. Abraham is held out to us in the biblical record as an outstanding example of what it means to trust what God has promised. And then after this, God does a remarkable thing. He enters into a formal covenant with Abraham. Animals are cut in half. Both parties who are entering the covenant walk through those animals together, signifying the seriousness of the covenant they're making. In essence, they're saying, may it be done to me what's been done to these animals. If I fail to keep the covenant we're entering today, and I know that's strange, but what God says to Abraham next is absolutely stunning. Take a look at this. This is what messed me up. And the Lord said to him, 
This is Genesis 15. Story of Joseph doesn't start to Genesis 37. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward, they will come out with great possessions. I think we can all agree that is a weird way to begin a covenant relationship with your people. One of the first things God said to Abraham after he makes this covenant with him is know this up front, your descendants, plural, keep in mind that up to this point, Abraham has yet to produce a descendant, singular. But God says they're coming when they get here. Watch this. They're going to spend 400 years. Let that sink in. America's been around 245 years as a country. 400 years in a foreign country and be enslaved and mistreated. But then they will be delivered with great possessions. <laughs> that would be like a husband saying to his wife on their wedding day, for the next 40 years, I'm going to put you through hell. But then it's going to get good, baby. <laughs> Does that blow your mind? How does that prophecy get fulfilled? How does this astonishing promise of suffering come about? And the answer is it comes about through a spectacular sin. A sin that sets up God's chosen people to be rescued from starvation so that the 12 tribes of Israel headed by Jacob's 12 sons would be preserved so that many, 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 many generations later, one would come from the tribe of Judah, one of Joseph's older brothers, who would conquer not with sword, but who would take the sword in our place. One who will come to power not by military intervention, but with a messianic substitution. One who will not rule with a show of force, but with a demonstration of love that would take both his breath and our breath away. Huge, huge things are at stake in the story of Joseph and the hidden purposes of God that sometimes takes generations to fulfill that we take no thought of in the midst of our momentary day-to-day -day living is magnified and glorified in this single, unique life like no other. Friends, listen to me. The story of Joseph is not a little series of moralistic lessons designed to teach us how to endure the various kinds of trials and traumas we face in this fallen world. It is that, but it is so much, much more. And over the coming weeks, I look forward to unpacking this epic scriptural narrative with you that has more for you than you can even imagine. I want to wrap up this introductory message by reading what the psalmist wrote about Joseph. Now, I've told you many times, and I'm going to tell you again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Psalm 105 is a fantastic overview 
and helpful summary for what we've introduced today. It's a bit lengthy. I'm not going to put all the verses up there like we normally do, but here's the reference. Psalm 105, 1 through 25. If you want to look at it, you can or look at it later. Just listen. Just listen as I read it to you. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he's done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done. His miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their food supplies. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, Sold as a slave, they bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass till the word of the Lord proved him true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed to instruct his princes as he pleased and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. I'm just going to stop right there. As we take in that sweeping arc of Israel's history recounted in those brief poetic verses, let me ask you a question as you listen. Who is the main character in that story? Who is the one who's at work in all things? Who is the one in charge? God is. He remembers and confirms his covenant. He allowed no one to oppress them. He called down famine on the land. He sent a man before them, Joseph. He made him master of the king's household. Friends, listen. The sovereignty of God in the story of Joseph is what turns trauma into triumph. And Joseph is going to teach us this, and you need to come back every week, or you need to be online every week, because here's what Joseph is going to teach us. If your take on God is right, your take on life can be right no matter what life takes. Now, come on, you didn't hear that. I'm going to say it again. If your take on God is right, your take on life can be right no matter what life takes. Joseph had so much taken away from him. Life took his family, his status, his freedom, 
his reputation. And as we read these accounts, we can't help but wonder, why did bitterness never seem to take root in his heart? It's because Joseph had to take on God that he would not allow circumstances to take away. At the end of his life, he summarizes his take on God that would sustain him no matter what life took. At the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, I'm going to give you the spoiler alert on the whole series right now. Here's where we're headed. Joseph is talking with his brothers who are fearful that, they will, that he will retaliate now that their father Jacob is dead. And Joseph says these remarkable words. Take a look. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The most important words in that text are these two words right here, but God. God was not just sovereign some of the time, in some of the places in the world, in some of the moments in Joseph's life. He was sovereign over every trauma that Joseph encountered, endured, and eventually emerged from triumphant. And this word right here, intended, let me tell you about that one. That's a Hebrew word that means to weave. Joseph's life started out with a dream that appeared to turn into a nightmare, but God is the original dream weaver. And he can turn ashes to beauty, mourning to dancing, despair into delight, shepherd boys into kings, lions in their lair into a harmless petting zoo, water into wine, a few fish in a couple loaves of bread into a feast for a multitude, a hardened sinner into a daring disciple, a doubting disciple into a messenger of hope, a scandalous past into a story of redemption, a Roman cross into a symbol of forgiveness and a graveyard of death into a garden of life and a trauma meant to take something from you into a triumph meant to take over. Now let's stand together. Let's stand. Lake County, stand if you will. Whoo, Lord, I'm worn out. There's a lot in that passage right there, God. In Joseph's story in Psalms 105, my goodness. Oh, we're so grateful, God, for the word of God. I just read your word again, and I just, I'm just so, so captivated. After 41 years of preaching, I love the word of God. I love this story of Joseph. The gospel is in this story. We've already seen it. The seed from Abraham who's going to bless the world, Jesus. He's in this story. And Father, we're in this story. I pray, Father, over the coming weeks, you'll just help us see more and more. What do you have for us? What do you want to do? How do you want to turn trauma into triumph in our life? Because we all have it. We all have it. So, Father, we surrender that to you right now. Because you, Jesus, you're the way maker. 
And we pray this now in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.